Okay, turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 10.9. Proverbs 10.9. Most of the interaction with scripture that we'll do today, you'll listen to me read scripture. From time to time to time, I'll have you turn there. I do wanna have you turn to this particular verse, which I'll read, it's very short, and then I will pray. Proverbs 10.9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the maker of the world. You are our maker and you have made the world for us and you have made us for the world. And as a part of this world and this experience in it, you have given us human sexuality and you have given us sex as a gift. Give us the grace that we need this morning to walk in this world with sexual integrity so that we might walk securely. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Excuse me, I still have my morning voice. It's nice and deep. It'll get a little bit higher as the morning goes on. I'm glad that you made it. Uh, Welcome to nine o'clock on Saturday. I see this sometimes. I don't always see nine o'clock on Saturday. I'm gonna begin with the story of a building in New York City. This is the Citicorp building. This is a story borrowed from an article at 99% Invisible titled Structural Integrity. The Citicorp Center almost fell over, wiping out 18 city blocks and potentially killing tens of thousands of people after it was built. When it was built in 1977, the Citicorp Center was 59 stories tall, the seventh tallest building in the world. And it's known by, in the skyline, you can pick it out by this 45 degree angle. But it's the base of the building that makes the thing really interesting. Take a look at that. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever seen a building like that before? The bottom nine stories of 59 stories are stilts, basically. It looks precarious, but it has to be sturdy, right? Because they wouldn't have built it if it wasn't sturdy. All right, well, let's get the story on this building. The structural engineer uh, assigned to the project, whose name was William Lemouger, I think. The design originated with the need to accommodate St. Peter's Lutheran Church, which occupied one corner of the city block. Citicorp was allowed to build their skyscraper even over the church, but they had to build a new church for the church and the church had to sit on the corner and the church couldn't be embedded within the building. So Citicorp could build the skyscraper however they wanted, even over the, over the church, but they just couldn't occupy the corner of the, of the block. The condition that, that's the condition that St. Peter's gave Citicorp. So this is, uh, this is sort of what they sketched out. Here's what's going on with this building. Nine story stilts suspend the building over St. Peter's Church, but rather than putting the stilts in the corners, they had to be at a midpoint on each side to avoid the church. Having stilts in the middle of each side made the building less stable, so Lemoucher designed the chevron bracing structure, rows of eight story Vs that served as the building's skeleton. But the chevron bracing structure made the building exceptionally light for a skyscraper so it would sway in the wind. So he, he in, embedded within this building uh, what's called a 400 ton device, a mass tuned damper, this giant thing at the top of the building that sort of compensates for what the wind is doing. <laughs> oh gosh, there's a guy that runs that thing up there so it wouldn't blow over in the wind. Well, a student was studying the Citicorp Center uh, as part of his thesis and had found out that the building was particularly vulnerable to what are called quartering winds, winds that strike the building at the corners. Normally buildings are strongest at their corners and it's the perpendicular winds that the buildings uh, uh, offer the greatest strain, but this was obviously not a normal building. So Lemoucher had accounted for the perpendicular winds 
that hit the side of the building but not the quartering winds that hit the corners. He checked the math when he got a call from this student one night, one year after the building was built and moved into, the student called and said, I think your building's gonna fall over in the wind. So he checked the math and sure enough, yes, the building would follow, fall over in the wind. Once every, he did the math, once every 55 years, a storm would roll through New York City that would knock the thing flat over. Uh, once every 55 years, but really it's once every 16 years realistically because a, a storm of that nature would likely take out the electricity which would kill the mass tune damper, which would mean that it didn't have this compensating mechanism in the wind. Something like five minutes at 70 miles an hour with the wind and the building goes like this, boom. The building doesn't crumble like this. The building literally falls over like a domino. This is why it would, it would uh, create 18 city blocks worth of trouble and kill tens of thousands of people. You can see Manhattan, uh, you can see the uh, uh, Central Park from the building and it probably would have reached the domino effect all the way to that point. So Lemu Cher and his team worked with the city corp higher-ups to coordinate emergency repairs in the building with the help of the NYPD. They worked out an evacuation plan spanning 10 city blocks, had 2,500 Red Cross volunteers on standby, and they, hardly any of these people even knew what was going on. Uh, this was happening in secret in the night. There was, uh, men would enter the building when it was empty, and they would uh, reinforce some of the chevrons with... Uh, <clears throat> I don't know, metal, they would do some work on it, make it stronger, another word right here, I forget what it was. Um, anyhow, they quit at daybreak, people would come in the building and no one knew this was going on. They were very nervous that the New York Times would catch on and publish a story about the building that might fall over. And in fact, the, the structural engineer got a call from the New York Times, but the next day he returned the call and that next day they went on strike. So no one ever found out. It wasn't until the 90s, over, over two, a decade and a half later, that somebody overheard the story at a cocktail party in New York City, picked it up, and then threw it to, I think, the New Yorker. Isn't that great? There's a little video on it you can watch, and, and uh, it's about an hour long. It's a great, great video on a crazy, crazy, crazy building. All right. There's from the bottom. There's a storm rolling in while they're doing the repairs. <laughs> it changed course, which is a good thing. So now you got a story to tell about a building. Well, here we are. Well, when a building has structural integrity, there are all kinds of wonderful things that can happen and take place in that building down the generations. When a person, a family, a church, a community has sexual integrity, all kinds of wonderful things can happen down the generations. And there's a lot at stake in getting structural integrity right with a building, and there's a lot at stake in getting sexual integrity right in our lives. And this starts with the men, and that's why we're here today, guys. That's why we're here today. It starts with us. A seminar is titled Building Lives with Sexual Integrity. The language of sexual purity is what we would usually use for a seminar like this, and it's good language. It's sort of well-worn, at least in my imagination. So I wanted a new image to help uh, freshen up some of the Bible's teaching on the importance of getting sex right. So sexual integrity it is. And whether you're single, married, or divorced, a teenager, an adult, whether you have a tendency toward legalism, licentiousness, or just laziness in this area, if you're a human being and a man, you're in the right place this morning, and I'm glad we're all here together. We're different in many ways, but you're also in the room with a bunch of people who, like us, are sexual sinners, all of us. need We experience shame. We need help from God, and apart from him, we are helpless, and a lot of us in this particular area do now or have felt utterly helpless to control ourselves. We're uniquely tempted as men with particular temptations that are unique to us, not that women are not tempted sexually in different ways, but our temptations are unique to us as men. And finally, we're here together if we're in Christ and that's who we share in common. So even more fundamentally than our manhood, we share the Lord in common if our faith is in him. So praise God that we're here. The seminar will unfold in three parts. First, session one, we'll consider the laws for sexual integrity. So you have physical laws. These would be, I don't know, sexual laws. Uh, 
uh, the moral context for our life. Section two will be the vision for sexual integrity, the picture of what we're trying to do with our life, what we're, a vision for a sexually pure, sexual integral life. And then third, we'll, do a, we'll consider a blueprint for sexual integrity, which is something like the design plans for a life of sexual faithfulness. Well, it's not in the sermons this morning. I pray that you're convicted. What I'm trying to do is to put some substance and some thinking structures and some ideas sort of in your hands and tools in your hands to get to work at, the, at a life of faithfulness to God in this particular area and to give us all some vocabulary and context for helping each other out as we pursue the Lord uh, and being faithful. So session one, the laws for sexual integrity. The laws for sexual integrity. Physical laws are simple, they're stable, they're knowable, they're universal, they're useful, and they're also true. We don't decide physical laws, we discern physical laws. And just as getting the physical structure of the world will make or break, getting the physical structure of the world right will make or break a building, pun intended. So getting the sexual moral structure of the world right will make or break even more important things like human lives and human relationships and families and communities and even eternities. So we are men in this room, the guardians of the world's, one of the world's most powerful forces for good and when abused for destruction. You and I are the guardians for one of the world's most powerful forces for good or when abused, destruction, and that is sex. You have the power as a human being to bless generations in people in your life by the right use of this simple and powerful thing. And you have the power to destroy lives in generations through the misuse of this simple and powerful thing. Now, of course, some of us are here and um, we are here feeling ashamed and embarrassed and hopeless with where we've brought ourselves. I say what I just said by way of warning and to heighten the seriousness of the matter, but of course we frame all of this within the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ where God comes to sinners like us. He gives us over sometimes to what we want so that he can show himself faithful when he turns us to himself by his grace and saves us with his gospel and delivers us from sin's power. So if you're here this morning with shame and regret, know that that God uh, so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That God has sent Jesus to address us in our worst and grossest and most destructive sins. And yet God's gospel saves us from the power of sin and redeems us to God for a life that is new and is characterized by newness and is characterized by holiness. And so you have his Holy Spirit, if you know the Lord, that empowers you to obey and to change. And so if you don't feel like you can change this morning, you feel like you're a slave to your passions, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, it is actually true that you can. And I hope that this seminar will help give you that hope. A lot is at stake. So let's discern what kind of moral universe we're living in, the laws for sexual integrity. In this section, I'll be giving you seven laws, seven laws for sexual integrity, not laws as in commands, but laws as in the way things are laws. And along the way, we're gonna walk through some of the most important sections of God's word. So in this session, part of what we're doing is listening to the word of God, and I'm gonna organize God's word on the topic underneath seven headers that I'm calling laws for sexual integrity. There is a such thing as right and wrong, 
And everyone agrees that there is a such thing as right and wrong. Every culture and every person has things they insist are right and wrong. Every culture and every person has things they insist are right and wrong about sex. The differences can be explained by different ways of discerning right from wrong. So how do we know? How do we, how do we actually know what's right and wrong? By what people around us believe, what our parents taught us, what we think is best, what feels good, what our heart tells us, what animals do, by what God told us. We could sum up our options under these two headers, two broad approaches. One is evolving moral knowledge rooted in mankind. This is where morality is a social construct. We make it up, basically it changes depending on where you are and when you live. And if this isn't the way that you approach morality, recognize that this is the air that we are breathing in every commercial, every show, and anything that we read. An evolving morality that transforms with the winds of time and where you live and when you live. Other kind of moral knowledge would be revealed moral knowledge rooted in a personal God where morality is fixed and does not change. It comes to us from God who means for us to understand what he had in mind to pick up what he put down, who reveals to us the way that he made the world. So it's either evolving and changing with time or it's fixed and revealed leads us to our first law, the law of moral knowledge. The law of moral knowledge. For each law, I'll give you a question. I'll state the law, we'll unpack scripture. Here's the question. How do we know anything about human sexuality? How do we know anything about human sexuality? This might sound like a fairly abstract place to start. How we answer this question, though, will determine how we answer every other question. And for some of you, you might be in a crisis of trying to crack the nut of how you actually know. You might not actually be fully trusting the Bible because you're not actually sure that's where we find things out. Well, Christians look to the Bible, actually believe that the Bible is the word of God explaining the world that he made to us. So here's the law. God reveals his designs to us in scripture which confirms and clarifies what we perceive in creation and with our conscience. I've sort of tried to ask a basic question and then give my sort of best answer summarizing the scripture on this. God reveals his designs to us in scripture which confirms and clarifies what we perceive in creation and with our conscience. The first time God spoke to human beings, he gave them a command Genesis 2.16, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in it the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The assumption in God's universe here is that God's word is true and it's to be trusted and is, it's, is distrusted at the cost of death. God's word is a basic assumption and it's truthfulness of the world that God made. It's the base of all morality, that is, a relationship with God. Notice that this was a profoundly generous command. Eat of every, every tree in the garden. He gave them the world. Adam didn't ultimately see God as generous, as we'll see, but when God's people have been in their right mind, they have exhausted words trying to describe the wonder and the generosity and the goodness of the word of God. Listen to how the psalmist reaches for words in Psalm 19, not even to speak of Psalm 119. Listen to the words and adjectives and verbs here. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are simple, sorry, are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they, God's words, than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there's great reward. Well, who doesn't appreciate a warning and a redirection 
and instruction when it's saving you from death, right? Restrictions in God's commands are actually a path to reward, a path to honey without bees. Notice that the law I'd stated said, God reveals his designs to us in scripture. God reveals his heart and his designs and his ways and his instructions for us in scripture. And then we said, which confirms and clarifies what we perceive in creation and our conscience. The Bible actually teaches that you don't need the Bible to have a grip on biblical sexual morality, on real sexual morality. Romans chapter one, turn there with me. Romans chapter one. I'll be reading several verses in this chapter in the next few minutes. It shows us what God outlines as the proper ordering of sexuality in scripture and says that it's actually plain to us and it's plain to all people. This is a crucial passage for getting what we call general revelation, what we know from the world God made. Verse 19 of Romans 1 says, we can, uh, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Okay, so it says that God's nature and power is clear in the world God made. I'm saying that sexual morality and sexual norms are clear in the world God made too. Where am I getting that? Well, Paul goes on to describe how we've exchanged the truth about God and his glory for a lie and have worshiped and served the creation instead. But the first manifestation of getting God wrong is getting sex and even human sexuality wrong. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And as a consequence, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now this, these two verses here describe homosexual sexual passions that are unnatural, but it is merely illustrative of the physical, uh, in a physical way of how all of us have gone wrong in a spiritual way. And of course, all of us are sexually perverted on a spectrum of sexual perversion. So while we may not, all of us, although some of us may, experience homosexual desire and desires sexually for the same sex, all of us experience sexual perversion, perverted desires, desires that work against the moral grain of sexuality as God has designed it. In chapter two, Paul speaks about the conscience which he says accuses or excuses our behavior. So we know there's a moral structure to the world because we're constantly defending ourselves in our mind, Paul says, or accusing ourselves of wrong and then defending ourselves. We know that there's a right and a wrong and we end up sometimes on the right and the wrong side of it. Here's the point. When it comes to sexual morality, we know what we know because God made it plain in the, his word but also in his works and what he's, what he's made. So to summarize, how do we know anything about human sexuality? Well, law one, God reveals his designs to us in scripture. This is where we go. But what we find out there confirms what we can find out through creation and by means of our, our conscience, even though scripture says we obviously suppress that truth and unrighteousness. Now we are tempted to pretend like this law is not true. We are very tempted. Each of us are gonna be tempted to pitch one or many of these laws or all of them. But Christian discipleship and sexual integrity requires that we live and love like this law is true. So hold fast to the word. This is how we know what we're going to know about human sexuality. In a world that has many different answers wherever you go and across time, God's word doesn't change. And he's gracious to have given it to us. So I wanna give it its due hearing. Okay, law number two. The law of origin 
Here's the question. Where did human sexuality come from? Where did it come from? And here's the law. Human sexuality is a good creation of God. It's a good creation of God. Consider how a mother and a father prepare for the arrival of their baby. Now, Christy and I have been sort of lazy about this. Uh, The Lord hasn't blessed us with pregnancy. We have um, expanded our family by means of adoption, and we thank the Lord for adoption. It's a different kind of path. Its timeline is not as predictable. Um, And as it is, I'm not sure we would have painted a room anyways. I mean, my kids are decorating the walls with their crazy pictures. Uh, I see on Facebook, some of my friends painting the walls and getting it all ready, and it's the most impressive thing in the universe, the shaming the rest of us who haven't, you know, done that. I just think I have to paint that white when I move again. We move like six or seven times in our marriage. In any case, they've got parents. They don't need a blue wall. All right, so parents take great care to prepare for the arrival of a baby. It's built in that they would nurture and love and look forward to and prepare for a child with great care. And in this way, God has made us a little bit like himself. In Genesis 1 and 2, turn there with me to the first chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. We have the creation story. We would be right to say it's the story of the creation of everything, but it's really more specifically the creation of everything for the creation of human beings. The world was to be our home and Eden, Eden was our cradle. We were to fill the earth. Listen to Genesis 1 and consider how carefully God designed us and how personal and benevolent he is in this creating work. I'll be skipping through some verses. First, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing and he created everything. And from there, he fills the world, fills the world in five days with plants and animals and stars, the moon and the sun. And on the sixth day, he makes humankind. And as more space is spent on the creation of humankind in the first two chapters, then in all the days of creation combined outside of that day. Because we're the crown of creation, everything else was a preparation for the arrival The arrival of human beings, God placed man in the garden. Verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let us have dominion over the fish of the sea. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You see that he's giving the world to humanity. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Special with care. The narrative slows down here. It gets more space. God is speaking personally about what he's going to do, announcing the creation of humankind. In verse 31, when he's done creating humankind, and God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it wasn't good as it was at the end of each other day, it was very good, it says. Don't miss that, only after he was done with us. So where did human sexuality come from? Human sexuality is a good creation of God. And my friends, this is also a truth, a law that we are tempted to forsake, but Christian discipleship and sexual integrity requires that we live and love like it's true, if God's word is true. Those are two laws. Now a third one, the law of structure. The law of structure. Here it is. Human beings come in two sexual kinds, male and female, and they are designed to unite in marriage, which is a complementary, comprehensive, exclusive, and permanent union. Genesis 2 18 through 25, I'll read it in full. In Genesis 2, we get a slowed down version of the creation story, uh, creation story's sixth day. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. 
I will make a helper fit for him. So he created Adam and he says, it's not good that Adam is alone. I'm gonna make a helper for him. But he doesn't just make a helper. Look at the way that he goes about this. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And this isn't here because uh, the writer sort of meant to say this stuff and added it here. It's here because Adam is being taught Adam is being taught that he needs a helper. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up in its place the flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, with poetry and song, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And for the first readers of this written by Moses, they would have an explanation for why things are the way they are and how they are the way they are. And who put them this way? The Lord God. Human beings, to summarize all this, come in two kinds, male and female. And although the differences go deeper than biology, you can tell which one you're looking at by biology. Christians believe that human beings come in two kinds, biologically identifiable. And our gender as male or female really is a part of who we are. We're not just beings that inhabit a body, like myself inhabits a body that I use, we are beings that include a body. Gnosticism in the first and second centuries thought the soul and the body were two separate things so that what you did in the body didn't matter, it was sort of separate, you inhabited your body. But Christianity has always said that we're whole creatures, created whole, created with a body. Either male or female. And Jesus became a man with a real body and was really male, he didn't merely inhabit a body. Well, these two kinds of human beings fit together, male and female. When a male and a female come together, biologically speaking, they actually, at that moment, get this complete, a new unified organism that does something when put together that neither can do separately. The Bible says they become one flesh. They fit. When it comes to things like walking or eating or talking or feeling things, you and I are ourselves complete human beings, complete organisms. But when it comes to reproduction, none of us are actually complete organisms. We're actually useless apart from the connection, physical connection with another. United to one another of the opposite sex, we complete with them a new organism that is capable of reproducing. And the way we fit together is a beautiful thing. Not only do we fit together biologically, but we fit together in every other way. Love how Josh Harris puts this. Isn't it wonderful how God has made men and women to interact with each other? He made men visually oriented, then made women beautiful. He made men initiators and then designed women to enjoy being pursued. In the heart of each man is an innate desire to romance and win the affection of a woman. And God plants longing in a girl's heart from a young age to make herself attractive. And all of this is part of God's wonderful design. Now, all of us aren't the way that we should be in our hearts, but the way that God made us is to go together in a beautiful way that displays God's glory. And when men and male and female come together sexually in this way, they have the power to make a baby, to make another human being. Now they will come together for other purposes in sex, but that's the biological thing that this one flesh united organism can actually do and uniquely do. And it's for this reason and others that men and women don't just come together and come apart, but are meant to come together and to marry. As they come together physically, they come together in every, in every way in marriage. 
And it's described here in Genesis 2 and this institution given by God as some characteristics. It's complementary. It involves one of each kind of human, male and female, each made for the other, equal in dignity before God, but different in role and relationship in this pairing. It's comprehensive. It involves their bodies, but also their whole lives. Adam was to, to leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. The place and the context of his whole life changes when he unites to the woman. And it's exclusive. He does not do this with a whole bunch of women. He comes together with one woman. And it's permanent. He clings to her. And Jesus will teach on marriage from this very verse and say, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So that marriage is not something that we, we make up. So we're talking about how our moral authority starts with the Bible well, the God has given us marriage and he's designed it here and explained it here. It was given to us by God and there's a certain moral logic to it so that we cannot escape, uh, which explains why uh, normal, near universal experience of marriage in almost any culture you go to, the way that God made this. There's a logic to it. I love this. Here's how Ryan Anderson puts this. Marriage exists to unite a man and a woman as a husband and wife to then be equipped to mother and father any children that that union produces. It's based on the anthropological, anthropological truth that men and women are distinct and complementary. So that's true and anyone can see it. Men and women are distinct and complementary. It's based on the biological fact that reproduction requires a man and a woman. They come together and they make life. And it's based on the sociological reality that children deserve, children deserve a father and a mother. And marriage emerges out of the reality of those three realities, those three realities that anyone can discern, out of the hard ground of reality as it can be picked up. So why is marriage now thought of so differently by so many, and why are we tempted to think differently about marriage ourselves? Robert George has a really clarifying explanation, uh, even if it's technical, technical sounding, give this a listen. He says that everyone agrees that marriage, whatever else it is or does, is a relationship in which persons are united. But what are persons? And how is it possible for two or more of them to unite? The view typically, if often unconsciously held, by advocates of liberal positions on issues of sexuality and marriage, is that the person is the conscious and desiring aspect of the self, the person inhabits or is somehow associated with a body, certainly, but the body is regarded, if often only implicitly, as the subpersonal reality rather than a part of the personal reality of the human being whose body it is. The body is viewed as an instrument by which the individual produces or otherwise participates in satisfactions and other desirable experiences and, re and, and realizes various goals. For those who formally or informally accept this dualistic understanding of what human beings are, personal unity can be achieved, uh, cannot be achieved by bodily union. Persons instead unite emotionally, or as those of certain religious cast of mind say, spiritually. And of course, this is true. If this is true, then persons of the same sex can unite and share sexual experiences together that they suppose will enhance their personal union by enabling them to express affection, share pleasure, and feel more intensely by virtue of their sex play. The alternative view, alternative view of what persons are is that human beings are bodily persons, not consciousnesses or minds or spirits inhabiting and using non-personal bodies. A human person is a dynamic unity of body, mind, and spirit. Far from being a mere instrument of the person, the body is intrinsically part of the personal reality of the human being. Bodily union is thus a personal union and comprehensive personal union, marital union, is founded on bodily union. And so today in the world that we inhabit and the news that we read and the TV that we watch, there are two views of marriage. A traditional understanding, as I've described, that says it's a comprehensive union of two people that can actually be united 
because biology is a part of what this union entails, the union of the whole person, and a revisionist understanding that says it's an emotional union of two, the, of two or theoretically any number of people. So as Christians working from the Bible up, we want to get this right. And our own sexual, personal sexual ethic and life depends on getting this right and all the way down in a convicted way. We sort of can't assume something that has been obvious to us for a long time. We've gotta own it if we're gonna hold on to it personally and pass it on to our kids. The revisionist understanding does not emerge out of the realities of gender and reproduction. So there's more to say on that, but being a Christian man today means having a grasp on these things and living in a certain way based on certain beliefs about human beings, gender, sexuality, and marriage. That's the takeaway from that point. The law of structure. God has built a particular structure into the world, a moral structure that extends to sexuality and Christian men who believe the Bible have to understand and believe deep down, not just because their parents believed it, but because God's word says it, that gender is a reality, male and female are different, they unite to make a child, marriage is tied to these things. It's comprehensive, it's permanent, it's exclusive and it's complimentary. We are tempted with the other laws to pretend this one isn't true, and you will be tempted. But Christian discipleship and sexual integrity requires that we live in love like this. All of this is true. All right, so that's third law. Fourth law, the law of purpose. Now here's the question. Here's the question for this one. What is sexuality for? What is it for? Here's the law. God gave us sex to glorify his goodness in our pleasure, his providential rule in our procreation, and his love in our portrayal of the gospel. So three purposes I'm saying here. God gave us sex to glorify his goodness in our pleasure, to glorify his providential rule in our procreation, and his love in our portrayal of the gospel. Let me read Genesis 1, 28 through 30. Listen to God's word. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Every act of sex between a man and a woman is intended, is intended for our happiness, our pleasure. Now this pleasure, this happiness has a few layers to it. It's physical, yes, but it's also a total person pleasure, emotional, psychological, relational, spiritual. And sex is meant to make our lives better and good and great, not just for the moments of pleasure that it provides, but for the way that it enhances the relationships in our life, particularly our marriage, in the way that out of the context of that marriage, fused together in a special way with the glue of the bedroom, blesses the, the children that it creates and the people that encounter that marriage and that family. Sex blesses the world as it blesses couples in their marriage and strengthens them for the work God called them to do. Every act of sex between a man and a woman is intended for our happiness. It is a bodily function, but it is not like other bodily functions because it is not merely a bodily function. It's tied to much deeper joys. Every act of sex between a man and a woman is intended for our happiness and our pleasure. And every sex of act between a man and a woman has the potential to create human life. And marriage should be open to human life and the creation of human life from that marital union. 
This procreation is part of God's providential care for the world. He set up the world so that he would give the world to human beings as his representatives in the world and then deploy them to multiply themselves over and over again and to spread his glory and his image throughout the whole earth. He loves life and he made us to love multiplying life. It's not merely pleasure and sex a mechanism for getting us to reproduce, although it does do that. It blesses us with pleasure in many things, but part of it is God's spreading of his glory throughout the earth and the multiplying of human beings. But more than pleasure or procreation, marriage, sex is also a picture. It's a picture of an even greater gift to humankind, the gift of God himself to us through the gospel. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 5, an exhortation to husbands underneath which is some of the most beautiful and richest truth in the world. It's like where the deepest thoughts and truths of the universe meet the most practical moments of our lives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love their, should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. He quotes Genesis, therefore a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Every act of sex in marriage, men as it is intended to bless the wife and nourish her and love her is a picture of God's love for us in the gospel. And if that sounds mysterious, then you're hearing it right. Paul says this is a profound mystery. God, in the way that he put life together, marriage together, was doing something really, really deep in picturing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who dies for sinners on the cross, in love, in extravagant, crazy love, pursuing his bride, the church. We picture that in our marriages. We are not taking in marriage, although we receive much. We're giving in marriage, in sex, to our wives. And this is one distinction between the world and the church where for us, marriage is an act of giving and we receive even in our giving. It's a blessing, it's a means of love. So what is human sexuality for? God gave us sex to glorify his goodness in our pleasure, to glorify his providential rule in our procreation, and to glorify his love in our portrayal of the gospel. And my friends, we are tempted to pretend this thing, this law is not true. But Christian discipleship and sexual integrity requires that we live in love like it is. Think about this. Fifth law, law of Adam. What went wrong with human sexuality? That's the question. Everyone's got to answer that. Every worldview has an Adam. That is an, some answer to the question of what went wrong. Some say rules are where things went wrong. The answer is sexual liberation. Our desires should be pursued. They are good if they're ours. Others say sexual sexual liberation is actually the problem. Rules are the answer or a part of the answer. Our desires are good, but they're perverted and messed up and they should be restrained. And rules reflect the order of the universe. Here's the law. Because of Adam's sin, every human being is born sexually perverted creatively and destructively seeking sexual fulfillment in ways that ignore the creator, reject his design, 
and distort his intent. And for this one, we need to go to Adam's story. We know that God made him, placed him in the garden, and gave him a command after which he also uh, gave him a wife and everything. And it was very good when that day was over. Then Genesis 3 happened. Three chapters in the Bible, we get an explanation for what went wrong. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And from here, sorry, I should have cued you up to go to Genesis 3. We may have been, you may still be in Genesis 1 and 2, in which case you're a page away, hopefully. Well, Satan recasts God's word in a way that makes him sound stingy. What we have here is the anatomy of how we went wrong and how we go wrong. Then the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So here Eve uh, downplays God's generosity and she adds a restriction. Now the serpent directly contradicts God's word and Eve with her own rationale, bites. Verse four of chapter three, but the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was, well, a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam looked on and then he ate. And ever since, men have been provoking, watching, or leading ladies into death. The scene following is perhaps the saddest moment in the whole Bible. No creature will fall from such wonder and fulfillment and blessing so fast and so far on a page. They were naked and they were unashamed. And now, verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid, afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Hiding, blaming, naked, covering themselves, and ashamed. Plants were meant for their enjoyment, and now they're hiding their shame. And from here, God issues a series of curses for the serpent, for the woman, and for the man, And since that time, men and women, just as they were made sexually different, have had different general patterns of sexual sin. Here's Josh Harris again. He puts it well. Men are tempted by pleasure that lust offers, while women are tempted with the power that lust offers. Lust offers men the pleasure of sex devoid of the hard work of intimacy. Lust offers women the power to get what they want relationally if they use their sexuality to seduce. And Al Mohler once made a shocking statement that's insightful. Men are tempted to give themselves to pornography. Women are tempted to commit pornography. Every hard and sad thing that comes from sex gone wrong started right here in the shame uh, behind the leaves in the garden. And for this reason, I'm calling this point the law of Adam, not the law of sin, because it does go back to Adam and in In Romans chapter five, the apostle Paul will tether condemnation, sin, and death to Adam, one man, and his sin. We don't really know ourselves or our problem until we we know Adam. 
We have little hints into how backwards we get sexually in some of the more explicit commands from Leviticus. Leviticus 18, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her and you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal so to make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall there be any woman to give herself to an animal to lie with it. It's a perversion. The reason these commands are given to Israel is because this is the stuff that's going on in the world that without the commands, well, uh, Israel without the new covenant and new hearts is not in a great position still. But the commands are an evidence that they need these commands. They distort his purpose of pleasure sexual sin does. The Bible admits that there's a pleasure in sinful sex, but it's a fleeting pleasure, deceitful desires it talks about. The Bible talks about a continual lust for more with respect to our sin and our passions. They actually don't satisfy us, they're fleeting. So sexual sin promises something, but then it takes. It promises something if we give it more, and it takes more. A continual lust for more, a spiral down. Believing lies, being sucked in. Sexual sin distorts the purpose of procreation, unhooking babies from sex for marriage in a way that shreds the fabric of life and family. And it distorts the purpose in picturing the gospel. So what's wrong with human sexuality? Here's the law again. Because of Adam's sin, every human being is born sexually perverted, creatively and destructively seeking sexual fulfillment in ways that ignore the creator, reject his design, and distort his purposes. And my friends, we are tempted to deny that this is true. We are tempted to disbelieve God's word concerning, um, disbelieve God's commands concerning sex and sexuality. You remember Eve there in the garden, God had a clear word to her, eat it and die through Adam. The servant says, you won't die? And then she goes, well, it's good for food and it's a delight to the eyes and it'll make me wise. I think I'll go for it. So when you hear yourself uh, trying to sort of compensate for what God's word says with good reasons in your mind to do this or that, you're just doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. God has spoken to us in his word and he's given us commands for sexuality to protect us. And we're tempted to disbelieve what he has said about the sinfulness of certain sex acts. But Christian discipleship and sexual integrity requires that we live in love like this one is true. Number six, law of Christ. We've gotta get here or this isn't a Christian seminar at all. How can sexuality be made right? There's no hope unless we've got a good answer to this one. We've got a great answer. Every worldview has a Christ, some kind of answer to the problem. If the problem with sexuality is all the restrictions that cultures put on it, then the answer is to indulge our desires, but we know better. Shoot, we'd know better just from watching this play out in the world around us and maybe in our own lives. But from scripture, God has told us better. In the movie Titanic, to illustrate sort of how this is at work around us, a subtle and not so subtle message was sent that represents this spirit of the age. And this is from, uh, I think her name's Linda Hirschman's book. I meant to bring it to show you to to you. uh, uh, I forgot the name of it too. It's a good book. It might not even be Linda Hirschman. I think that's a different author. In any case, it's by Crossway and it's yellow and pink and red and it's about sexual morality. It's a great book. It's that thick. Okay, it's a proper citation. Heimbach, there it is, page 34. Here's a quote. James Cameron, the director of Titanic, told viewers the movie was not the usual romance story because it had a morally inspiring religious message. Okay, Titanic. This is what the writer's saying, producer, director, sorry. Rose, the heroine, in the opening scene, credits Jack, a fellow passenger, not only with saving her physically when the ocean liner sank, but saving her in a spiritual sense as well. In her words, He saved me in every way that a person can be saved. From the story she tells in the Titanic movie, it is clear that Rose's inclusion of a spiritual salvation relates to premarital sex she had with Jack just hours before the ship went down. The the calm means that she was saved spiritually, 
reached a higher dimension of spirituality through what the Bible calls sexual sin. So you see how we're exactly backwards. The world isn't so explicitly stating it. Uh, But they would say the problem is restrictions. The salvation is freedom and liberation to do whatever you'd like. Christians say that the problem is our desire to do whatever we'd like. Our passions are not rightly ordered. They will kill us and hurt people. And what we need is salvation from our desires, help from our desires, and from God restrictions and direction. Christianity locates the problem in sin, which hijacks the good gift of sexuality and ruins it for us. And Christianity locates the solution in Jesus Christ. Here's the law. Number six, because of Christ's work, humans can be redeemed, which includes the forgiveness of our sexual sins, freedom from the power of sexual desire, uh, perverted, and reconciliation to God, who is immeasurably greater than his gift of sex. 1 Corinthians 6 is a passage you need to highlight in your Bible. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, uh, nor drunkards or revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, one of those huge contrast passages, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Such were some of you. That were, that were word is so profound. It assumes a few things, two things. First, that we were, as this passage describes, sinners condemned not inheriting the kingdom of God. If you believe that word were, you believe that everyone on that list, which is all of us, was not inheriting the kingdom of God, was outside of a relationship with God and under his condemnation. But second, it's the word were. It was the case. People that were condemned and outside of God's favor, not inheriting the kingdom of God, now are, and how? Through Jesus Christ. And how is it that we are now no longer the kind of people, the kind of people we used to be, so not just saved from its penalty, but we're different people? We were washed, sanctified, justified, and given the Holy Spirit. In other words, our sins were dealt with and we're reconciled to God. We once hid from God in shame, and weren't acceptable to him, and now we're united to him. We no longer hide, but we know him. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. And why do they do what they do? Who do not know God. That's the difference. You and I, through Christ, aren't like unbelievers, the unbelievers we used to be. And what happened? Through Christ, now we know God. Now we know God. Now we're not hiding. Now we're accepted because of Christ. I love this paragraph. We don't just know about him, we know him when his Holy Spirit's in us. Law seven, the law of eternity. How will human sexuality end? Every worldview has a view of history. Some say it's evolving and progressing. They tend to see an innovation in sexuality as a good thing, a progress forward toward improvement. They tend to see human nature as changing and evolving and morals changing and evolving with it. Christians see history as progressing, but progressing toward a particular end. Things progress forward, but this progression can involve digression and disintegration morally, not always improvement. And we tend to see human nature as unchanging and thus changes in behavior may or not be an improvement. So we, we believe in the progress of history, but not the inevitable improvement with every change that humans bring about. Here's the law. Human sexuality is unique to this age as a teacher and a taste of the age to come. Our ultimate horizon is a new creation where there is no marrying, 
Just a few weeks ago, we heard a, a sermon from Ryan from Mark 12 where Jesus says, is this not the reason you were wrong to the scribes because you need, know, neither, know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they'll neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. They were asking about what happens in, uh, you know, after the resurrection, guy had his wife die and then married another. So which one's he married to in heaven? Jesus says, you're out of your mind. There's no marrying in heaven. We're like the angels. He pulls back the curtain a bit. Marriage is one of the best things this world has to offer and we won't miss it. Revelation 19. Listen to how loud this is. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, John writes, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. God made them male and female in his image. And in Genesis, we read that he blessed them. This blessing will surpass it by far. For in the new creation at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will not only know God as our creator, we will know him as our gracious redeemer. And by the way, we won't be sad that there isn't sex in heaven. We'll wonder how we ever settled for and preoccupied ourselves with sex. And so how we handle this powerful force called sex is really a preparation for heaven. If you're single, there's a reason for this. In a fallen world, pairing up is not easy. If you're of marriable age and desire to be married, then you know this, that it's not easy. And it's one possible re reason for singleness is just the difficulty in a fallen world to find a mate. A second reason for the gift of, is the gift of singleness. Some are actually set apart for God, by God, for special work in the context of singleness. Jesus was single, Paul was single, we think. Some of you are single. Whatever the reason for your singleness, remember that eternity is longer than however long you have waited and will wait to be satisfied in a marriage relationship if you desire that. These promises of the marriage supper of the Lamb, that marriage is for you too. Just a word to single brothers. Seven laws for sexual integrity. The law of moral knowledge, law of origin, the law of structure, the law of purpose, the law of Adam, of Christ, and of eternity. Everyone has a sexual ethic unconsciously or unconsciously based on their understanding of these seven areas. Everyone. It's a, it's a filter you can run anything you hear or read through. So let's know who we are and let's know whose we are and let's live like it's true. Like physical laws, these sexual laws are simple, they are stable, they are knowable, they're universal, they're useful, and they're true. We don't decide them, we discern them, and we delight in them. That's session one. Let's take a 10 minute break. Five minute break, go to the bathroom. Back here at a quarter after. We'll start at quarter after sharp. <laughs> 